Do you remember when you first heard of Uber? Have you heard people recently talking about Uber and wondered, what is it? Yeah, I do actually. A mate of mine had just come back from the States and she'd used it heaps over there and told me about it. And I think it had actually just started in Australia when she returned from the States. So yeah, that's when I started using it. I guess I'm probably what you'd call an early adopter. Well, this is Lee Sales from ABC's 7.30 report back in December 2014. It's a sort of car service like a taxi, but it's a lot less regulated. And because of that, it can be a cheap and efficient option for people needing a ride. Uber's only been around for a bit over five years, but it's already operating in dozens Uber, of Uber, or more specifically ride-sharing service UberX, muscled its way into Australia nearly three years ago now, taking aim at the $5 billion taxi industry. Instead of drivers having to pay thousands of dollars to be a licensed taxi driver, you could just use your own car and find paying customers through Uber's app. In New South Wales and many other Australian states, this was actually illegal. Under the Passenger Transport Act, you had to be an accredited driver to transport paying customers. UberX drivers were warned they faced fines of over $100,000 if they were caught. It took over 12 months of UberX operating illegally before the New South Wales government even announced a task force. Then finally, in December 2015, ride-sharing and, by extension, UberX became legal. So it took almost two years from go to woe for that change to happen. This is an example of a disruption that governments just weren't prepared for. And when ride-sharing did eventuate, governments were on the back foot. But change is brewing in the transport industry again. Autonomous vehicles are here, and what's standing in their way is regulation. Today on Think Digital Futures, will our transition from driver vehicles to autonomous vehicles be smooth? Or should we strap ourselves in for a long and bumpy ride? Hi, I'm Shane Anderson. I'm Ellen Liebeter. And this week I was at the Future Vehicles World Conference, sitting in a room with people who are involved in creating this transition. Being restricted because of the fear of the unknown and because people yeah. are just scared, there's resistance. And there'll always be resistance to new technology. Yeah. And that is why it's more my personal opinion, not necessarily the group, but to put legislative legislation dead last because it, all it does is hinder technology being rolled out. There's a whole lot of problems being discussed, and we're being encouraged to look at the bigger picture here from a range of stakeholders. You're a future F, Lucy. Oh, yeah. My name's Lucy. Lucy. <laughs> um, so, I'm a digital citizen. Um, very much uh, cash poor, but relatively time rich. I'll certainly choose options that save me money, if uh, even if I have to compromise a little bit on time. But I'm, but as a young woman, I'm conscious of my. What's clear is that unlike Uber's invasion, the people in this room are very aware that the future of autonomous vehicles is here. But before we go further, you should understand what actually makes an autonomous car autonomous. There's five levels. We're currently sitting at level zero autonomy. That's where you control everything about the car, the brakes and the steering, and you are totally in charge of the vehicle. Then there's level one, where certain things are controlled by the car. Think cruise control. The levels increase until you hit level five, autonomous, which is where an autonomous vehicle's performance is the same as a human, or let's be real, probably better. And that level of autonomy is already here, according to the experts. Uh, my name is Urci Grau. I'm uh, the director of the Masters of Research in Architecture at UTS. I'm an architect. Level 5 autonomy exists. It's government and us that are standing in the way. 
the level five, the technology is there already, but technology is not enough. There is a series of legal, societal, technological, and infrastructural issues that are in the middle of the conversation and has to be quite, uh, kind of sorted out. Utsi's referring to that big question that's really at the heart of this technological age. How much do we really trust technology? There's a lot of anxiety about putting our lives in the hands of software. We've even talked about this on the show before, about what happens when driverless technology fails. And it's scary stuff. But from the experts we spoke to, this isn't so much of a big deal. We already put a lot of faith in cars. We trust the automobile. When you get in the automobile and you're driving along, you trust that brake. When you step on it, it's supposed to operate. We trust these technologies already. We have the uh, cruise control in the car. We already trust it. We set it for 100 kilometers. You don't think it's going to... But if all of a sudden you come up on a... Let's say a branch falls down on the road. The, The sensor in the car will start slowing that down or another vehicle comes out. You know, you don't have to put your foot on the brake and slow it down, the sensors start slowing it down automatically. This is Professor Ed Blakely. I'm the uh, founder and principal of the City Leadership Institute and professor at the University of Sydney. And we also put a lot of faith in the people who drive them when we step into a car as a passenger or even an aeroplane. A lot of flying happens with the plane on autopilot. There's already been one death from a self-driving car. Note that this is a self-driving car, not a driverless car. You still need to have your hands on the wheel because it's not fully autonomous. But this is one death out of many tests. Compare that to how many people die on the roads in driver cars. More than a million people a year die in automobile crashes of one kind or another. Uh, This would be intolerable if we're trying to introduce the automobile right now. We say, look, we're going to introduce this thing, and about a million people a year will die. (laughs) You'd say, you are nuts. Get out of here. The airplane wouldn't have a chance if the safety record weren't so high, and we have some very serious airplane accidents. But if we introduce the autonomous vehicle, we could reduce that death rate by at least two-thirds, at least And people say, oh, I don't want to be killed by an autonomous car. I don't want to be killed by a driver car. So I think it's pretty safe to say we're more than happy to put our trust in our cars, especially when it means we can kick back and watch a movie while on the move. When it comes to autonomous vehicles, the real trust issues will be with the network and supporting infrastructure around the car. This is Nathaniel Bavington. I'm Nathaniel Bavington. I'm the Smart City Coordinator for the City of Newcastle. Newcastle is opening up the city to autonomous vehicles, and they're doing so by investing in the Internet of Things. It all starts with cars being able to share information between each other. I'm I'm not a technologist, but from my understanding is that most of the technical challenges are solved, and the final gaps are around how the onboard technology integrates with the city technology, because a connected vehicle is only connected if it's connected to another endpoint. So vehicle-to-vehicle is happening very quickly and all car manufacturers are now producing capabilities in their vehicles that will let a car speak to another car and pass information back and forward about congestion or hazard or that kind of stuff is, is here now. And assuming we can get our cities up to scratch, the cars will then be able to interact with the streets as well. The problem with the city-side infrastructure that enables autonomous and connected vehicles, and we're talking here about a city that can collect information about all of the things that are happening in an extremely multi-layered and complex environment 
and pass that information to a vehicle moving at speed so it can process information about that complex environment. So that's called near zero latency. You cannot have that information going from, in our instance, from a computer in a light pole back to a central database for processing and back to the car. The car's already in the crash. Right? So you need to have what's called edge computing, which is where the so distributed computing so the system itself, the city itself, becomes a distributed computer. That's very expensive and very hard to achieve. So basically, your car will be feeding off information from its surroundings, from the streetlights, from other cars, even from your smartphone. Everything will be connected, part of the Internet of Things. Nathaniel says it's something the city of Newcastle is looking at integrating. So we're going to have a streetlight that also has a um, type of camera called a LiDAR camera which is uh, produces a point cloud so it doesn't produce an image of like a flat picture it produces a 3d model of what it's looking at that's the type of density and complexity of information that a, an autonomous vehicle will need so it can understand depth so it can have a real-time understanding of of its environment so for us uh, that camera will be produced just one of many types of sensor will be producing information data on the city and a central processing platform which is housed right across the city will process that information and can share it with vehicles so the car and the pole and the person with the phone they're all just things connected in the internet of things it goes without saying our internet speeds will have to increase dramatically to do any of this but if we can get it right it has the potential to change how we interact with cars there's a different type of trust which is trust in a network to provide the convenience that it's sold you want. So if I'm, I'm a, a father of two kids, so four in our family plus a dog, if we get rid of our car and we do that on the basis of a system and said we can supply your needs, then I have a, a large amount of vested trust in, the, in that platform. And if it fails to deliver, I'm either suddenly inconvenienced and disenfranchised from my city or I go get my car back. Uh, and so I think there's that trust in the network capability rather than um, trust in the, the brake pedal. So what Nathaniel and many other experts are proposing is a system of transport that is plugged into technology and fully integrated into our city. If you've ever sat in traffic during peak hour and looked around at all the other cars, all transporting one person, you'll know that this is an extremely inefficient way to get around. One of the biggest shifts we're likely to see with autonomous vehicles is a shift in ownership. Currently, you might own one, two, maybe three cars if you've got teenagers, and it's all for convenience. But if a smart network can bring you a car when you need it and take you where you need to be, why would you bother owning your own car? Here's Utsi again. Imagining that the car not anymore will be something that you use individually, but actually it belongs to the sharing economy, right? I mean, Uber, in a way, is like that already, you know, a car that is used by a lot of people and by basically it's a pool car. But uh, when you actually add to something like that the possibility of eliminating the human factor, the fact that this has to be a driver, you, you have this car that is basically circulating through the city that anybody can stop and get in and get out, right? It's a service that's in, who needs to actually own a car when actually the car is all the time circulating. How many hours a week would you spend using your car? When you think about it, they're a bit of a dead asset, especially if you live in an urban area. Nathaniel Babington again. The average car is only actually on the move for about 
it's, it's less than 20% of its time. So most cars are stationary. So you only have to look at a, um, a shopping centre and the massive kind of apron fringe that surround, surround it that is um, it's three, four, five times the floor space of the actual shopping block just for cars to be parked. So we can reduce the amount of cars on the road by having a super intelligent transport system, by implementing more carpooling and keeping cars in constant use rather than using them 20% of the time. That at the moment, uh, most of the industry and most of the people is targeting the self-driving implementation as a huge safety improvement. And that's clear for us. But uh, one of the claims that we are doing that a change of uh, exposing it as a as maybe one of the biggest environmental messages of our area, and if we do it properly, it, we strongly believe that it could be, that's something that it changes also radically the scenario. This is Guillermo. He's a research student working with UTSI. He says if we shift to electric cars and use our cars more efficiently, it's good news for the planet. The reductions of CO2 are, are very clear, but in order that to happen, there needs to be like uh, all these agents involved and there has to be a huge policy negotiation that uh, this goes together with the electric and with the sharing economy. And that the final result of this is a reduction of number of cars and which will radically uh, reduce the greenhouse emissions. Okay, so as a society, we trust these cars. We're working on building the technology to maximise the way these cars work. What about the legal implications? What happens when someone crashes? Well, this is one of those areas that will need to be changed. Legislation and road rules use words like driver and driving, and that'll need to be clarified. There's even a rule in particular about a driver having proper control of a car, meaning at least one hand on the steering wheel. Obviously, if there's no steering wheel, that rule can't apply. Law firm Clayton Utz suggested in a 2016 report that in a scenario like that, it's the automated control or the corporation that developed the driving system as the ones who are really in control of the car. And surprisingly, some car manufacturers are already taking responsibility when it comes to insurance. Here's Utzi again. I think BMW and Audi and a series of other companies had agreed to claim that if we get into a situation in which all the cars driving around are self-driving cars, they will assume any accident that happens, which is quite amazing because it shifts the way in which we think about insurance and everything, right? Like your car crashes and it's not your fault, it's uh, Audi's or BMW or whoever fault, right? Like it completely changed the logic also of insurance companies and things like that. Not everybody agrees with that. We mentioned earlier that this technology is already here and its predicted self-driving cars will be available for you to purchase in two to three years' time. Fully autonomous vehicles will be the norm in about 15 years' time. So with this change happening quickly, how do we begin to transition our infrastructure? Just, just.
Just words. Just words. Finding the line between free speech and protecting the vulnerable. You can't say or do anything anymore, otherwise you'll be dragged off to the law courts. Why is this the pressing issue of our time? Just Words is an original 2SER series. This new podcast goes beyond the hype and headlines about race discrimination laws and gets the true stories from those that have used 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act and those that have had it used against them. New episodes will be released every Monday, starting from February 27. To listen, just head to iTunes or your favourite podcast app and search for Just Words. Subscribe today. Autonomous vehicles would work best in theory if they're getting their cues not just from the static environment but also from all of the cars around them and how those cars are behaving. That's much easier to create a two-way flow of information from autonomous vehicle to autonomous vehicle than it is to do it from an autonomous vehicle to an older vehicle that's still person-operated. Welcome back to Think Digital Futures. You just heard Alex Carrington, Chief Operating Officer of the Warren Centre, talking about the transition to driverless cars. It's a practical reality we could be facing in the next few years, but are we ready for it? Yeah, so before the break, we basically gave a laundry list of the things we really have to think about before we make the transition to driverless cars. But the transition isn't just about learning to let go of the wheel. It's about reconfiguring the concept of what a driver is, our relationship to our transport, to the road and to the city itself. The mechanics of this changeover is exactly what Utsi and Guillermo research. Utsi calls this looking to the close present rather than the far-flung sci-fi future. The transition to driverless cars isn't a new challenge for a city. For each huge shift in technology, we've had to make these kinds of changes to city design. Every time a new mode of transportation arrives, there is a kind of a, the need for a complete Hi. transformation of the way we relate with technology and the way we relate with transportation. Within uh, the effects that in cities, for example, the arrival of trains had, or the arrival of cars, regular cars, or even, you know, basically public transportation like subways, right? But building subways and preparing for driverless cars are pretty different in practice. Building a subway is expensive and it takes a lot of time. Utsi says that for driverless cars, the changes aren't necessarily in infrastructure. It's about thinking about the little things that we have to adjust. Those are the ones that, even if they seem meaningless or banal in a way, are the ones that are going to frame how the future is going to happen. Think of things like speed limits. Would we still need them if we had cars who could adjust to the driving conditions? And lane markers. If cars can detect things like how far to drive from the curb and when it's safe to overtake, would we still need them? Plus, we talked about no longer needing to own cars, so that's probably the end of the parking lot too. Uh, So, for example, probably in the next three years, we will see that a number of cities will change or will make small changes in the way their sidewalks work or the signages work or the traffic light work or the way the signs in the, or the lines in the, in the tarmac are painted uh, in order to be able to claim that they are pre- prepared and ready to uh, welcome self-driving cars. 
The question then is whether or not governments and city planners are prepared for this. But Utsi isn't sure the governments are playing a big enough role in the driverless transition. What we found in our research is that uh, cities and uh, governments are super interested, but in a way are trying to catch up. They are, they are continuously asking what we should do. And what we also found that is really, really interesting is that it's not a space in which those conversations could happen, which is, uh, you know, it's fantastic because it's a, a huge space that is there to be, to be developed. When you look at who is actually developing driverless cars, Tesla, Google, these are all private companies. And Uzi says this is a pretty big concern for him. Not because private companies are evil or something, but because obviously the interest of a private company not necessarily reflects kind of a, a common interest of society, right? So it's concerning in that sense, but also I think it's an opportunity in a way. And let me explain that. Because what's happening right now is that uh, even the private companies themselves are trying to figure out how are going to implement the cars in the city and what changes could happen. So they, we are in a moment in which private companies are asking cities and governments, what can we do? We need to discuss this thing. So it's uh, a moment that could be really, really interesting to kind of bring back the agency of, uh, of cities and governments into a discussion like this one. And this issue gets even more complicated when you start to cross borders. Driverless cars aren't a one-size-fits-all model, and they have to be able to adapt to the conditions wherever they are. This is a bigger challenge than it sounds. Here's Alex Harrington again. When I say the tech is there, the tech is there if you operated these vehicles in a lovely, pristine environment with no unknown elements, no kangaroos that could jump out, no pedestrians that deviate from the sidewalk, no bad weather. None of these elements contribute to the system in any meaningful way that makes it completely safe to operate as we know it is now. So there's a challenge in terms of making sure we understand the complexity of the system and then how the human interacts with it and what the process is. Think of different driving conventions in different countries. I once drove a motorbike in Vietnam, and the traffic there to an outsider looks just chaotic. Motorbikes, pedestrians, cars, trucks, all seemingly ignoring the traffic lights. But there was actually a rhythm to it. The smaller vehicles gave away to the bigger ones. This wasn't something that I was used to, but I got used to it pretty quick. If there were lots of bikes in a cluster, then that would count as a bigger vehicle, and then the truck would have to give way. So to use driverless cars, you would need to program it to operate by that logic and not necessarily by following the lane road or the red light. Yeah, you couldn't just drop a driverless car programmed for Sydney to a road in Hanoi. Guillermo says that driverless cars have to be trained for different driving cultures. Of course, they are they are being trained to different driving cultures and, and even they can modify slightly how aggressive or how less aggressive they have to be in a specific places in order to operate correctly. That's really interesting. Can you give me an example of where they, there's a modification between countries? I mean, it's in general, but for example, uh, in terms of conventions, uh, most of the countries follow the Vienna Conventions in terms of signage, for example. So the cars are programmed in terms of the Vienna Convention, but however, in the States, in every single state, the signage is different. So uh, again, the, the programs have to be able to accommodate to these, to these changes. I don't know if it's such a good thing that you can program a car to drive aggressively. Well, that's just one way driverless cars have to adapt. 
There's also things to think about, like what side of the road to drive on, and even differences in road regulations between states. Utsi says this, more than the technology, is why we're not fully automated just yet. Whole cars will adapt to different local uh, environments, both in terms of weather conditions and you know cultural problems, all the way to uh, traffic regulations, right? Like we know, like to drive in Australia is not the same thing than to drive in the States, not only because the cars go in the other side, but because there is a series of cultural conventions of how you drive. So all these things are in the middle and those are the things that need to be sorted out. In making the transition to driverless cars, there's so much more going on beyond the mechanical parts of the car itself. Really what we're looking at isn't a technological issue. It's a legal one, a cultural one, and an architectural issue. We need to look at the big picture of how we use the space around us and how we can adapt that space to plan for the future. Digital Futures is supported by 2SER and the University of Technology, Sydney. For more info, head to 2SER.com forward slash Think Digital Futures. I'm Ellen Leibeter. I'm Shane Anderson. Bye for now. <laughs>